Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Jesus says to the demonic spirits inside of the man, and they're begging that Jesus would leave them alone. He demands, Jesus demands to know, what is your name? He demands that of them. And the spirits answer back, our name is Legion, for we are many. Legion, that's a word that was well known in that day. It's a, a Roman word. It's a military term. It means 6,000 soldiers, 6,000 trained killers, efficient in their work. We are legion. But likely 6,000 isn't where they stop because by this time it had entered the language as a word that simply meant numerous, much more than 6,000, too many really to count. In other words, the man was overrun. He was overcome by these demonic spirits inside of him. Even as the demons themselves say it, for we are many. We're many. They seem in, in declaring their great numbers that Jesus has met his match. It's one against a legion. But they begin to beg. Jesus won't yield. Please don't send us out of the country. Some people take that to mean that demonic spirits have territories or nations. And there are some indicators in Scripture that that is sometimes the case for them. That they're assigned to a certain area. And so please don't send us out of our area. Because then we won't have anywhere to go. If you force us to leave this body, where will we go? That may be what they're talking about. It could be. Don't, don't send us somewhere else. It's curious, isn't it, again, why Jesus agrees? Their suggestion is, Jesus, if you're going to send us out of the man, which seems to be inevitable, please send us into that herd of pigs over there on the hillside. And it's curious that Jesus agrees. Why does he agree with their suggestion? Well, for one thing, pigs are a perfect fit for them. That's where they belong. They belong anywhere. It's in pigs, the lowest of the low, the unclean of the unclean. They, they belong in pigs. They're suited for the life of a pig. But I think there's something else. He sends them into the pigs in a moment at their suggestion. I don't think it's to demonstrate that the man is delivered, but it's to show the seriousness of his condition and where demonic forces would take all of us, all of us, if they ever got full power. That's what they would do to us. They'd take us down to the level of a pig, or worse, a suicidal pig. You see, Satan, contrary to cartoons and popular ideas, Satan is not some kind of a cute little imp that sits upon our shoulder and whispers sweet nothings in our ear. He's one who would devastate every life he could get hold of. He, he is one who would wreak havoc any way he could. He, he is one that, that would destroy everything that is good. He would destroy it. From the 
oldest to the youngest. And we see that even in our day, even life in the one place that should be the safest place in the world, inside of our mama's body, he seeks to destroy life there too. You see? Clearly, we've got a battle here, don't we? We've got a battle is what we're looking at here. And as it turns out, it is a very one-sided battle because Christ will be victorious again. And that man will be completely restored. And that man will be so restored that he will become a follower of Jesus himself. And the forces of Satan are going to be forced into those suicidal pigs that they suggested. But it's also a battle of questions. Because both sides in this struggle demand answers from the other, and only one side gets the answers he wants. First question is in verse 7, chapter 5 of Mark, where the demonic spirits, and remember, it's really not the man speaking here, but it's Satan who's inhabited that man. Satan demands from Jesus to know, what do you want from me? What do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What do you want from me? Now Jesus does not answer him. For the simple reason Jesus doesn't have to. But there are good answers in the mind and heart of Jesus for that question. Why do you, what do you want from me? One of the things Jesus would say to him is, I want to silence you today. Jesus' usual method is to do that when he would encounter a demonic spirit, a foul spirit, that would know who he was, because they know. Jesus would usually use that method. He would silence the spirit and not allow them to say anything, even if they were saying what was true about him or about the situation. He would tell them to be still. And so Jesus wants to silence the enemy here. And what does the enemy say? He says, you are Jesus, son of the most high God. Now when he calls Jesus son of the most high God, he's reaching way, way, way back into ancient history. In fact, he's reaching back into Genesis 14, where, where there will be an encounter with Father Abraham, the patriarch, the father of us all, the father of the faithful. Abraham will be returning home from a, a skirmish, a battle, and he will encounter a mysterious character by the name of Melchizedek, who is two things. Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. He has no pedigree. They don't know who his family is or what his lineage is, but he shows up there on the road. And he's two things. He's king of Salem. Salem is the city, the little city at that time that will later become the great city of Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of peace, this mysterious Melchizedek. But he's also a priest. Abraham thinks he is the only servant of the Most High God, El Elyon. Most High God. He thinks he's the only one that is a servant in that territory of the Most High God. But he meets Melchizedek, this mysterious king-priest, who's not only king of peace, he's also priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. The same name that Satan 
uses for Jesus, you are son of the most high God. He's reaching way, way back for that one. What does the enemy know? He knows this. He knows this name for, the, for God. And he knows that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. What does the enemy know? He knows plenty. He knows plenty. The enemy is not cre- terribly creative. That's why he tempts you the same way over and over and over again. He's only got so many tricks in his bag. But he is a fast study. And just by virtue of being around millions upon millions of human beings, good, bad, and indifferent, for a long, long time, he's picked up a lot of information, information even about Jesus Christ. So what does the enemy know? He knows plenty. He knows the truth. For centuries, he's been interacting with people who do know the truth. Is he accurate here? Yes, he's accurate. Jesus, in fact, is son of the Most High God, El Elyon. He knows that. He knows the truth. But Satan can twist the truth. He counterfeits the truth. He can take a little bit of truth and twist it in with a bunch of error, and it becomes a counterfeit truth. He can do some miracles, but they're counterfeit miracles. He can mimic spiritual gifts, but it's a counterfeit, you see. The end time story contains an incident yet to come where this character known as the beast, the satanic ruler in the end times, they construct out of honor and homage to the beast. They construct an image that is the spitting image of the beast. It's some kind of a statue or something. But then a false prophet waves his magic wand, or says the incantation. And the image of the beast seems to come to life. It's miraculous, but it's a counterfeit miracle. And later on, that beast will be struck with a mortal wound. He will seem to die, and he will resurrect again another miracle. But it will be a counterfeit miracle. The enemy is a liar and a counterfeit. He knows the truth, but the truth he knows, he twists. You see, Christ always silences that. Even when the enemy is technically correct, he always silences the enemy, even if he is accurate. Because any involvement with the enemy, listen to this, never ever brings clarity, even if he's right. God is not the author of confusion. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. God is not the author of confusion. God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of disorder. But guess who is? And that's why Jesus silences him this time and every time, because he never brings light. He always brings darkness, even when he's right. But the enemy's question again, what do you want from me? The answer from Jesus is to silence you to shut you up, to shut you up with all of your lies. That's what I want with you. Lies about your future. He'll lie to you about your future and tell you you don't have one, that you're a loser. That's a lie. He'll lie to you about your past and tell you that other things may have been forgiven, but that one thing 
It will never be forgiven, never be forgotten. He's a liar. He will lie about the power of the cross. He will lie to children about their security. He will lie to young people about what is true morality. He will lie to young women about their self-image and their shape and their self-worth. And he will lie to men about what a real man is. He will lie to us when we get older about our future, all to try and frighten us, you see, to distract us, to confuse us, to wreck our sanity, and to steal our peace. And Jesus wants to silence all of those lies. That's what he wants with the enemy. That's what he wants with the enemies. He will lie to our nation, and he does. He'll lie to nations. He seeks to bring confusion. You know this just by turning on the television. He seeks to bring confusion into every policy debate, into every election, into every national discussion, whether it's about race or morality or the unborn. He will bring confusion. You know why? Because of one of the names Jesus called him, Beelzebub. An Aramaic name, an ancient name that means Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Think about flies. Nasty, disgusting flies. Frida has reached a point where when she sees a fly, she almost freaks out. Fly! She's right about that because they're disease carriers. They're filthy creatures. Satan is Lord of the flies. He doesn't cause every wound. He causes some enough. While he doesn't cause every wound and every sickness and every tragedy, he's like the flies that will come and will fester around that wound until there is a greater chance of infection and putrefaction. He's Lord of the flies. And Jesus wants to shut him up. Don't listen to him. Jesus didn't. What do you want from me? Jesus would say to Satan, I want to expose you. That's what I want. Again, the enemy says, by God, don't torment us. In the name of God, by the mercies of God, don't torment us. How strange is that appeal, isn't it? That on the lips of Satan, they would appeal to God. He uses Scripture, you know that. The great showdown in the desert, Satan and Christ at the beginning of his ministry He appeared to Jesus at one point, quoting Scripture, and he reminded Jesus of the psalm. He took Jesus to the top, the pinnacle of the temple, the highest building anywhere around, and he's daring him to jump, and he's doing it on the basis of Scripture, the psalm that says, don't you know, Jesus, that the Word says that he will give, the Lord will give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against a stone in falling. Well, look, here's an opportunity to fall, and there are plenty of stones to dash against. So why don't you go ahead and jump? Go ahead and jump and prove that Scripture and prove that God will take care of you. He's quoting Scripture there, but he twists it. He twists it to his own agenda. And he does have an agenda, and it's a clear agenda. 
In John 10.10, Jesus contrasts his agenda with Satan's agenda, and he says that I have come to bring abundant life, the fullest, most satisfying life you can possibly live or imagine will be in me when I live in you. But Satan has come to kill and steal and destroy. And he will use whatever means he can to kill and steal and destroy us. He twists reality. I've seen this so often with people that believe they're right when they're clearly in the wrong and on the wrong side of God. I'm thinking of people that were wife abusers and they justified it by saying, but I'm saved, you know. I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You're headed straight to hell for your behavior. That's what you are. It causes us to bend reality. I've seen people on the basis of the scriptures, they say, leave one spouse for somebody else and take up with somebody else and they point to the word and justify their behavior by the word. And all the while they leave behind them the wreckage of a family broken. And they say it's because of the word. It's the word that's been twisted by the enemy if it's the word of, at all. How often have I seen Christians who begin with play drinking They begin to play at drinking. And it takes over and it snowballs. When you approach them, they say, oh, drinking? Jesus did it. Yes, he did, but not like you are. Not at all like you are. And not with the results that you're getting. But they justify it on the basis of Scripture. And they end up... With shattered lives all around them, I'm thinking right now of a family that's set where some of you are sitting this morning. And they began with play drinking, and they were warned about the play drinking, but they laughed it off and they disregarded. And today their family is shattered, it's destroyed, and every time I think of what they've done to people around them, most especially those that they said they cared most about, it makes me want to vomit. The destruction is so complete and irreversible. But that's the enemy, you see. That's the enemy. He lies. He lies. He's a liar. He's a schemer. He's a destroyer. And what does Christ want to do with him? He wants to expose the enemy. Because that's what he is. The very beginning of the human race One of our forefathers, Cain, is allowing his life to be overtaken by jealousy and envy and rage. It's not going to go to a good place. He's directing it against his only brother. He will end up murdering him and be the greatest disappointment that a child has ever been to a parent. His mother, Eve, had been told that you'll have a child and that child will grow up to reverse the curse of the enemy. In fact, he will crush the enemy's head. And when Cain is born, she naturally thinks, this is the child who's going to reverse the curse. And he ends up, instead of being savior, being the first murderer of his own brother. But before the deed is done, the Lord appears to Cain in the privacy of his home, and he says, you need to know 
that sin is crouching at the door, that the enemy is right outside your house. Beware, be careful. But he disregards. And the enemy comes into his home and into his life and he murders his brother. Most of our homes, most of the homes in America, on an annual basis consume thousands of hours that are the product of the most creative minds in our culture. But they also happen to be among the most corrupted minds in our culture. The most damaged, the most twisted, the most corrosive minds are sending things through our screens, big and small, into our houses. You see, that sin, not just crouching at your door, you let it in your door. That's the enemy. And through entertainment, he comes into our homes and he comes into the brains of our children. He's a father of lies. That was Jesus' favorite name for him. He is the father of lies. He was a liar from the very beginning. And Jesus is the one who exposes his lies. I don't have to expose the lies of the enemy for you. You ask Jesus and he'll do it for you. What do you want from me? Jesus would also say to defeat you. And here's where the news turns very, very good. Because the Bible tells us in a little letter tucked at the end of the New Testament, a letter, 1 John, it says this, the reason that the Son of God, the same name that Satan used for Jesus, in that encounter with the demoniac, the Son of God, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, listen, the works of the devil. Hallelujah. That's why Jesus came. To expose him and then to defeat him. And that's exactly what he's done. Well, that was one question Jesus did not answer on that day because he didn't have to. But he posed the question that the enemy had to answer. It's in verse number 9. What is your name? What's your name? And we could talk a long time about the answer to that. And the miracle that tumbled out of that and the deliverance and all of that will save that another time, another day. But just the question, what's your name? That tells you so much. It tells you who is in charge. It's not the enemy. It's Christ. Notice Jesus again did not answer Satan's question, but Satan had to answer Jesus' question. We have so many misconceptions about the enemy. One of them is that he is God's opposite. I remember years ago getting home and I was just tired. And unusually for me, I turned the television on. I thought maybe there's something good on. Shows you how dumb I am. And it was a movie edited for television. I believe it was called The Golden Child, Eddie Murphy. He was a spy or a detective or something. And there was this cry ring and they were wreaking all kind of bad things and doing all kind of bad stuff all over the world. And Eddie gets to the bottom of it and he finds out secretly that they're taking their orders from Satan. And there's a scene where Eddie is in the warehouse and he's hiding and he's, he's discovering all of this. And, and, and the warehouse melts away as the 
the crime kings are consulting the boss, Satan. And the warehouse melts away and you're given the impression that, okay, now we're in hell. And it's an ugly looking place. And you hear, you don't see, but you hear this booming, commanding voice that's giving orders and tossing orders out and telling people what to do and how high to jump. Satan. Got this huge James Earl Jones voice. And I remember thinking, that's not true. That's not the way it really is. You see, the portrayal often is that Satan is somehow the opposite of God. He's just very bad. Satan is not God's opposite. He has no creative power. He cannot read your mind. He can only know from you what you tell him. And what you allow him to do is all he can do. In fact, it's so simple that the Bible says, resist the devil and he will run away from you. All you have to do is say, no! And no means no. And he can't take another step towards you or your children. He's a fraud. He's not God's opposite. If he's got an opposite, it would be an angel. He's a created being, but he's not God. He is a fraud, and he's not in charge. And the question Jesus puts to him and forces him to knuckle under and answer, what is your name, demonstrates who is in charge that day and every day. And it's not the enemy. It's not the enemy. He's just a created being who has soiled himself with the deadliest of sins, pride. That's all he is. The Bible says, Jesus talking in a chapter or so ahead of this one. In Mark 3, he talks about his mode of operation in dealing with the enemy. He says, first I have to bind him because he is a strong man. And once I have bound him, I go into his house and I bind him. I chain him up. I cause him to be immobile. And part of that is demanding the name. Then I plunder him. And Jesus has done that. Jesus has entered the home of Satan, this world, this broken, fallen world. He's entered it, and he plundered him on the cross. And he took back from Satan what Satan had no right to own, and that was you and me. He bought us with his own blood. He plundered Satan on the cross. What is your name demonstrates who's in charge. It also tells you where the enemy is headed. I want you to turn very quickly. Isaiah 14. It tells you exactly where the enemy is headed. And it tells you in such a way that you know he is a lifetime fraud. It says it this way, talking about the enemy. Isaiah 14, beginning about verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of heaven? You know what the Hebrew word for star of the morning is? It's the word Hillel. We get our word Lucifer from that. It's talking about the enemy here. How have you fallen? We're going to see him in a fallen state, not in a powerful state. You've been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, 
And if you've got a pen in hand, mark every time it says in the next two verses, I will, because there are five of them. It's an act of supreme will and rebellion with which the enemy says five times, I will. I will ascend to heaven. In other words, he'll take God's place. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That was his crime. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. And God said, no, you won't. And he's cast down. And here we see him at the end of time. Look at what happens. Nevertheless, with all of your bragging and all of your talk and all of your threats, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. That's the grave. To the recesses of the pit. Now listen, here's where we come in. Because we'll be there on that day to see this event. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness, overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. He was pitiless. And the day will come when we will look at this shriveled thing that caused all of the trouble, who masquerades as an opposite of God, and we will say, is this it? This is what did that. That's how puny he is in comparison with Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying with his question, what is your name? He's demonstrating that he is much in charge and he's letting the enemy know exactly where he's headed. No wonder on that day they beg to be thrown into pigs because they know where they're headed. There's a final reason. There's a final thing revealed in Jesus' question, what is your name? And we'll wrap up with this. It's the reality that Christ sets people free. He sets people free. That's part of what he's starting with, what is your name? He's going to set the man free. You know, if you looked at the rest of the story of this particular man on that day, what happens to him is very interesting. Jesus drives the spirits out. They go into the pigs. The pigs go suicidal and the pigs die. And so now those demonic spirits, are, they're forced to wander again. It's the thing they hate, not to have a host. They're parasites, and they must have a host. But now they're loose again, and they're, they've got no home. Townspeople that were there run in and tell everybody else, the crazy man in the tombs is okay. He's in his right mind now. And so everybody rushes out, and when they see the destroyed pigs, the bloated bodies floating in the water, they've gone insane and killed themselves. The people are frightened. And it's a very curious thing. In fact, to me, it's the weirdest twist in this weird story. And they ask Jesus to leave. Please, go away. Go away. You're disturbing us. There's a man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. But you're disturbing us. We'd rather keep our pigs. It's a weird twist to a weird story, isn't it? And then Jesus gets up to go and the delivered man, he runs after Jesus. He begs to get in the boat with him. I want to be your follower. He is his follower. 
And Jesus tells him, not this time. I've got a better assignment for you. You go back home and you tell everybody you know what great things God has done for you. You be my spokesman, be my mouthpiece, be my ambassador. And so the end of the story, we say goodbye to this man. We'll know more in eternity, but he goes to Decapolis. Decapolis. And there he tells what great things God has done for him. You know what that means? Decapolis is not a city. Decapolis is a region. Deca, ten. It's ten cities he goes to. And he is so convinced as a follower of Jesus Christ that he's found everything he needs that he spends the rest of his days convincing other people to also be followers of Christ. You see. It's an amazing story. And it points out, among other things, that disciples for life make disciples for life. You know, the man was so thoroughly, unmistakably free that he used the keys that he now had to set other people free. And i got to tell you, this story is much criticized by experts, secular experts. They really zero in on this story that we've just looked at. And they say, you know, what these primitive first century people called demonism, why we can now explain it. We can explain it today as psychological illnesses and emotional problems. We can even name them by looking at the man's symptoms. It's another topic for another day. But there are actually seven indicators that anybody that has Encounters what the enemy uses to make sure you're not dealing with a mentally ill person or a psychologically damaged person or a chemically dependent person, but you're actually dealing with Satan. There are seven ways to know. And let me tell you, this man fit all of them. But those ancient people, they knew the difference between demonism and illness. The Bible is full of stories about Jesus healing people that were ill. Not every illness, he knew that, they knew that, was demonic. And so it's wrong to say that these ancient people are primitive and they don't know the difference. They did know the difference. They lived the difference every day. We're probably the ones that don't know the difference. I wonder sometimes how many people in psych wards would be delivered if somebody would go in and just cast out the devil. We're the ones that don't know the difference. But this man, when he finds Jesus Christ, when he first sees Jesus, he is, he is, he is nothing like a human being created in the image and likeness of a loving God. He's deformed. He's shrieking. He's cutting himself. There's the self-mutilation and the eventual self-destruction is where it's headed. That's what he's doing. He, 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 he's not like a person created in the image and likeness of God. This isn't a sickness that we're dealing with here. But the center, the very center of his personality has been impaired. It has been damaged. It has been wrecked. The interior space that we call self has been invaded. And that interior space that we all have 
And a thing called memory is what makes the self. And all of that in his case has been invaded and it has been warped by a very dark and alien power. And it's destroying him. It's seeking to ruin him completely and and drive him to self-destruction just like it did when it got hold of the pigs. That same power, don't kid yourself, it's loose today. It's out there today. And it's active today. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Because what he did then with those forces, he can do today with those forces, you see. I want to close with this. It's kind of a it's comforting passage in the book of Hebrews, but it's also to me just a little bit haunting, really. What the Word has to say about Jesus and His continual encounters with these evil, ugly, dark forces. And, and it's, its spillover reaches us even today in, in Hebrews. It talks about this enemy and how he affects us. He may not turn you and me into shrieking demoniacs, but he frightens us. In Hebrews 2, 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Christ, you know this, likewise also partook of the same, he became flesh and blood. And here's why. That through death, his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he gets better. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We're scared of dying. We're scared. But we don't need to be scared. That's a slavery that the enemy puts on us. And when Christ comes to live in us, he sets us free from that slavery. In the same way he sets an alcoholic free, or he sets the pornographer free, or he sets the liar free, he sets us free from fear, even fear of death. We don't need to be afraid. Because Jesus inside of us sets us free. He's broken even that power of the enemy. What a good God we have. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.